pray this morning that you would open our hearts to your word. I pray for the children, too, that you would bless them in their classes and in the nursery. Lord, we just uh, thank you that we can meet here and uh, freedom and worship you in spirit and truth. And, Lord, we do look forward for that day when we will be transformed from this body of uh, it's just failing us more and more each day, Father. And I thank you that one day we'll be transformed into a glorious body and be with you forever in glory if we know your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if we've trusted in him for salvation. And, Father, we pray if there's any here who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ that they would be open. That, Lord, that you would move and work by your spirit to open their hearts, to open their eyes, to see the truth of the glorious gospel of Christ, the good news that he came, he loved us, he came, he died, he was buried, he rose on the third day, and that he can change your life when you yield your life over to him and acknowledge him as Savior and Lord. And so, Father, we just ask you to bless our time now in your word. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we're continuing. The kids can go down, go downstairs. Um, in our little mini-series, let's talk about heaven. And uh, this morning, we're going to do a little review and then talk a little bit about our lesson this morning. But there should be a real priority, uh, you might say, in our lives when we talk about heaven, especially as Christians. Um, we have to understand the future hope of heaven gives us a perspective on this life with all its problems and its frailties and its suffering and all that stuff. And it gives us a destiny beyond imagination. And so, uh, in the, Paul mentions the practical results about heaven. He says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord for we walk by faith and not by sight, as Ken read this morning. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I pray that that is a truth that rings true in your own heart, that you yearn for heaven, that you're not planting your tent so deep, your stake so deep in the, in the earth down here that if the Lord were to come back, you'd try to maybe persuade him to wait a little bit. <laughs> Sometimes I think people live their lives that way. They're so caught up with the here and now, they forget that there's a place of glory called heaven and we're destined for there. Last week we looked at the preciousness of heaven and we saw basically nine things that are already there. Our Father, our Savior, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our names are written down in heaven. Our inheritance is there. Our citizenship, our reward for all eternity, our master and our treasure. And so you can just summarize that everything that is precious to a believer is already in heaven. And so that's where we should long to be. I remember when I was young, we would have either like a birthday or maybe even Christmas Day. And later in the afternoon, after we opened the gifts on Christmas Day, we'd have to go visit a relative or somebody and have dinner at their house. And... I was always frustrated that I was away from all the new toys that I got. <laughs> I couldn't play with them because I was at somebody else's house. And I remember coming back home and, you know, running through the door and thinking, yeah, I'm finally home at last where everything is, you know, that's precious to me as a little kid. Well, that should be our heart when we talk about heaven. Uh, heaven is our home. We're strangers. We're pilgrims down here, the Bible says. We should be considered as aliens on this earth. 
Uh, everything we love and everything we value, everything eternal is in heaven. Well, what is heaven? We talked about how the Bible mentions it 550 times. It's First of all, it's a place. And we saw that in First, for Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, Paul is talking about himself, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And we went through last week, we talked about the different uh, levels of heaven, you might say. First, there's the atmospheric heaven, clouds, what we know, our, our earth, what we breathe, the air around us. Then there's the planetary heaven, the stars and the sun and all that's there. And then beyond that, there's a divine heaven. Psalm 102:19 says, He looked down from his holy height, from the heaven, the Lord gazed upon the earth. And even Jesus came down from heaven. And so it's important to understand that heaven is an actual place. It's also a domain. And what I mean by that, it's a, it's a place where, where there's powers and there's principalities. Uh, uh, Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places. In Christ. Being rich in mercy goes on in, in chapter 2 of Ephesians verses 4 and 6. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us up with him in heavenly places. All those things are past tense. You have to understand as a Christian, your place is not here. It's already in heaven. And that's what we should be looking forward to. Even though we're not in heavenly, in the heavens yet, we are in the heavenlies, the Bible says. And that's where the domain where God lives and he rules. And that's how we should live our lives. We don't live it by the standards of the world. We live it by the standards of God. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man is in Christ, he's a what? New, right? New creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So we're new creations in Christ. We're members of a new family. And the new family has a new home called heaven. Rather than remaining the children of Satan, we have become the children of God. And that's very important to understand, that we've left that kingdom of darkness as believers, and we're in the kingdom of light. We're no longer under the dominion of Satan. Aren't you glad about that? I mean, but we're under the dominion of God in Christ. That, that should uh, cause us to, to rejoice with the Lord. We talked a little bit about where heaven is. We basically said it was up. And we looked at different scriptures, and you can get the CD on that. We also said the distance-wise, it's a long ways away. We don't know how far it is. We don't know where it's at. It's up. It's somewhere out there. Um, but you, we talked a little bit about the distance of our universe and our, our galaxy and all that. And you stop and you think about the wonder of the, the thief on the cross when he trusted in Christ as he was dying there next to Christ. Christ said this to him, Today you shall be with me in paradise. So even though it's a tremendous distance from the earth, okay, somewhere out there, up there in the heavenlies, you're there like that. It's not like you, you go on a road trip and, you know, you're on your way to heaven. No, you're there instantly. I mean, wouldn't that be incredible if you could just be somewhere instantly? Just kind of wish you were there and you were there? rather than have to go through all the, the, the hassle of planning a trip and do all this stuff. I mean, it would be, be such an easy way to do it. Well, that, that's our trip to heaven. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be instantaneous. And that's what we need to remember. Well, today I want to focus on what is heaven going to be like? What is heaven going to be like? And just kind of an overview. It's not in detail because we really don't have a lot of detail. 
But if you, in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, Paul tells the Roman believers that they should be rejoicing in hope. They should be rejoicing in hope. And what was he referring to? He was referring to, in Romans 12 there, the hope of heaven, which ought to fill us with joy. I mean, one day we're going to be transformed from this lowly body and we're going to be put in a glorified body and we're going to be in heaven. Now, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1 says this, The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Now, he was being a little cynical there, to say the least. Uh, Life had lost its meaning to him. But you know what? As Christians, we can kind of agree with what he said. We really can. Because we have the hope of heaven. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul said this, To me, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. It's not loss. So many times when... You know, we, someone passes away and you go for, you look for a greeting card and, you know, they're all sorry for your loss. You know, sympathy toward your loss. I understand what they're saying. But as believers, beloved, it's not a loss to die. <laughs> we are transformed right into the presence of God. And what a glorious thing. Well, what is heaven like? Well, who, the way to answer that is, you want to know who is going to be there. Who occupies heaven? First of all, we know that God occupies heaven. And we know that because the last week we looked at several verses. It says he looks down from heaven. Heaven is the dwelling place of God. Although he is present everywhere, listen to this, at all times, heaven is uniquely his home. You say, well, how does that work? I don't know. (laughs) You know, if you can explain how somebody can be everywhere at the same time, and yet be in a single place, that's hard to understand. Everything that is precious to us there, the Father, the Savior, fellow believers, our name, our inheritance, all those things that we talked about. But the number one thing that I want you to focus on is the inhabitants of God, first of all, or the inhabitants of heaven, first of all, include God himself. To be in the presence of God. What a glorious thing. Secondly, the Bible tells us, and you can turn back to uh, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, because the second occupants of heaven are holy angels. Holy angels. Notice I said holy angels. You said, are they unholy angels? Yes, they're called demons. They're the ones that turned their back on God, that rebelled along with Satan, with Lucifer. But the holy angels reside in heaven. Look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Angels. Seraphim. They're in the presence of the Lord. And it says there in verse 3, And the one called to another said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. See, even the holy angels acknowledge the holiness of God that dwells in heaven. Do you understand in heaven there is absolutely no unholiness at all? Nothing imperfect. There's no disease. There's no pain. We will be perfect in heaven. 
What a, that's, that's kind of neat to look forward to, just, just that aspect of it. We'll be looking at each other and we'll be perfect. What a, what a glorious thing. Over in the Gospel of Matthew 22, verse 30, it says, For in the resurrection they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So what will heaven be like? Well, it says there that there won't be the relationship of marriage in heaven. You say, but I really love my wife, or I really love my husband, you know. That's fine, you're going to see him. You'll be up there with him, you'll recognize him. But the marriage covenant is for here on earth. Up there, we will be in the presence of our Lord, our Savior, our God. And that will be the relationship that we're focused on. Luke 15.10 says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So stop and think about it. The Bible says every time a sinner repents and turns their lives over to Jesus Christ, the angels in heaven have a party. (laughs) They glorify the Lord. And that in and of itself should give us a little indicator of the celebration that goes on in heaven when Someone comes to Christ. See, that's why I believe that that Christ left us here after we're saved. I mean, God could have worked out a different program. He could have said, okay, as soon as you put your faith and trust in God, you just get beamed right up to heaven. (laughs) You don't have to stay here on earth and nothing. You're gone from the earth. As soon as you trust in Christ, you're gone. That's how it would work. Well, there'd be nobody left here to share the gospel. There'd be nobody left here to do the work the ministry of the Lord on his behalf. So he left us here for a purpose. He left us here to take the good news that we have received out into a lost and dying world and trust him to change their hearts. I trust that we have that that responsibility understood in our own lives, that we do that on a regular basis, whether it's with family or friends or strangers. Because we live in anticipation of heaven, hopefully when you go to heaven, you're going to take some people there with you. (laughs) As a result of God using you, sharing the gospel with others. Now, we don't save people, right? We don't have the power to save people. You know, that's, that's a misnomer. But we do have the power to present the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we present the, 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 the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're doing our job. It's kind of like you're, you're a waiter, you know. You're, you're not the one that cooks up the, the meal. All right, that's God. He's got the gospel already prepared. The meal's on the plate. All he's saying is, come to the kitchen, I'll give it to you. You take it out to the people and you serve it to them. And if they don't like it, not your problem, because I'm the cook. Right? You're just the waiter boy. You just bring my message to the people. If they take a bite of it and spit it out, don't worry about it. It's not your problem. It's my problem. See? Because a lot of times we're, we're restricted from sharing our faith because we feel intimidated. We feel, well, if somebody rejects the gospel, they're rejecting me. No, they're not. No, they're not. So we need to be bold in our faith because when we share Christ with someone and they come to know the Lord, it says that the holy angels in heaven rejoice over that, and God rejoices over that. So you have God in heaven, you have the holy angels in heaven, and then last of all, there's us, the saints. 
Heaven is where the saints who have died now dwell. That's where they're at. That's where believers who are alive will someday be, in heaven. Although we're not in heaven now, physically, we are in the heavenlies. We're under the domain of God's rule. And that's how we should live. That's why in Colossians, Paul says, you know what? Don't set your mind on things below. Set your mind on things above. You hear it said once in a while of people, oh, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I don't see that much in the church today. (laughs) I don't see many people that I would look at and go, boy, they're just so heavenly minded, (laughs) they're no earthly good. Matter of fact, it's just the opposite. (laughs) They're so fixated on the earth, they've forgotten about heaven and the task that the Lord has given them while they're here. But one day, the saints who trust in Christ, those who have put their faith, their trust in Christ, will be in heaven. That's what a saint is. A saint is someone who is protected by God, someone who has put their faith, their trust in God. A saint doesn't refer to a little statue in a church somewhere that you pray to. Okay, There's only one way to become a saint, and it's not by some pope passing an edict saying, okay, now you're a, you're a saint. The only way you can become a saint is by putting your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And coming under the the lordship of his rule in your life. Then you're a saint. Then you're on your way to heaven. In Christ, God has given us something of heaven's joy. If you stop and think about it, the love, the power, the blessedness. We have the power of the Holy Spirit in this, right? Galatians tells us that that produces fruit. Not fruits, but fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All those things should possess our lives. But you know what? Those things are not going to come in their fullness until we enter heaven. Why is that? Because, you know what? Last time I checked, I'm I'm trapped in this sinful body. I'm, I'm trapped in this sinful world. Everywhere I look, I'm surrounded by sin, tainted by evil, all this stuff around us. So God has given us, it says, a deposit of his spirit just so we can get a little taste of what it's going to be like in heaven. And when the Spirit is filling our lives, we're controlled by the, the Holy Spirit, we're going to see the evidence of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, those things aren't like different fruits on different trees. Oh, you know what? I think I'm going to focus on love today. Or I think I'm going to be a little more patient today. Or God, help me be a little more kind. No, it's called the fruit, singular, of the Holy Spirit. We don't have the freedom to pick which one we want. We should have them all evidenced in our lives if we're truly believers, if we truly trusted in Christ. But we won't see them fully in our lives until we enter heaven. And that spirit is just a down payment. You know, I mean, if you believe in a powerful God, and he put a down payment on you personally, The Holy Spirit, that's what it is. It's a down payment. Do you think that you're so powerful that somehow that you could cause God to negate on his deposit and walk away and lose his money? I don't think so. I don't think we're that powerful. I want to believe in a God that's more powerful than me, 
So when God says, I have you in the palm of my hand, I don't think that I have the freedom just to jump out. What I'm saying is I don't think you can lose your salvation once you've put it in the work of Christ. Some people say, well, what about, you know, I have a friend that, you know, they were a Christian and they, now they're not and they walked away and now they're living in sin. What, do you, what about them? Well, they were never a believer. They just, it's that simple. They never were. If they did, then they would repent and come back. But if they never repent and come back, they were never a believer, beloved. There's a lot of times that we give people maybe a false hope. You know, we, we've boiled down the gospel to this simple little, you know, they, we, we call it the sinner's prayer sometimes. And if that's coming from your heart and you're sincere, that's okay. But you know what? I've seen people use that in a way that, that maybe even the, the, the originator of that doesn't mean it to be used. So when we go out and we share the gospel, we're not out there to talk people into heaven. We're out there to share the message with them and then allow God to do the work of turning their hearts, transforming them, because we can't do that. Now, should we, should we do it with all our might? Should we be encouraging? Should we be um, you know, after it and, and really uh, want people to desire to come to Christ? Yes. But we have to be careful that we don't make it a, a man-made thing. Because I've seen so many times where people do that. And so many times it's, it's more, you know, hey, look at the badges on my chest. Look at who I won to the Lord. Look at what I'm doing. And that doesn't glorify the God, the God of heaven. It glorifies yourself. So we have to be cautious about that. But I, I want to encourage you that when someone puts their faith and trust in Christ, when we share the gospel with them, they are assured of heaven. And I think that that's a, uh, you know, think of it this way. The Christian life is kind of like the hors d'oeuvres. You know, it's just the hors d'oeuvres. Our life down here is just the, you know, the, the precursor. The main course is going to come in heaven. Um, but I want you to understand both Old and New Testament believers, and this is important to understand, who have died are in heaven. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because when I was going through school, I was taught something different. And I never realized it until I really studied it out years ago and realized, wait, this isn't true. Uh, I was taught that when an Old Testament person who trusts in God dies, that they go to this, like, holding tank. And then, you know, when they're resurrected, then finally they'll, they'll, be in their, they'll receive their... Uh, glorified bodies at the second coming, and then they'll be in heaven finally. But that's not true. That's not what the Bible says anyway. And that's what we need to understand is what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what men teach, right? So all those who have faith in Christ have accepted God's way of salvation, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament times, are now in the presence of God. There's no purgatory. There's no purgatory. In the Catholic Church, purgatory is a place between hell and heaven. And so, it was basically created, um, I believe, so that the Roman Catholic Church could have their hand on your wallet even after you died. Because, you know what, if you're assured of heaven and you'll be in heaven right away, well, after you die, then that's it. 
But if somehow they can get you to believe that, no, 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 it's not, not that sure, you know, there's still heaven, there's still hell, but there's a place called purgatory, and it's in between. And to make sure that your, your loved one's in heaven, we want to make sure that you either pay in advance or you have them pay for the priest to do masses in their name. And, and eventually, if we do enough of this, they'll work their way up through purgatory, and then they'll be into heaven. Crazy. Exactly. You know? And I, and I want you to understand that that is not true. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't teach what the medieval theologians referred to as limbo. There's no purgatory. Paul said he preferred in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to what? Be in limbo? No, to be in the presence with the Lord, at home with the Lord. He said he desired in Philippians 1, 23, I already read this, to depart and be with Christ. See, when we consider that Christ prayed that all who know him would spend eternity with him, our hearts should be overflowed with gratitude. We need to have that heart of Paul. We need to yearn to be in the presence of God. Now, you might say, well, how do you know there's no purgatory? I mean, is there a place in the Bible? Well, I can point out a couple different places. I listed some of the uh, references there in your Notes, first one, if you turn to Psalms 16 and you look at verses 10 and 11, the psalmist says this, that even as he faced death, here's what he wrote. Thou will not abandon my soul to shield, neither will thou allow the Holy One to go under de- undergo decay. Thou will make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand There are pleasures forever. That doesn't sound like limbo. This is somebody in the Old Testament. Psalm 23, one we know very well. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table in the presence of my enemies. Now it's anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. And then it says this, Surely goodness and mercy or loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in limbo, no, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See? And so the writer assumed that once life was over, he would be in the house of the Lord. He would be in heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And if you're still doubting, if you turn over to the Gospel of Matthew, we looked at this when we went through uh, Matthew 17. But in Matthew 17, once Christ was transfigured, he had risen from the dead, risen from the dead, Moses and Elijah, it says, or when Christ was transfigured, Moses and Elijah appeared with him. And if you look here on, uh, in verse 3, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, who is him, Christ. Okay, this is, is before, all right, the death and resurrection of Christ. And so here you have two Old Testament people appearing with Christ. Well, if they were in limbo, how would they do that? 
All right. Also, over in Luke 16, we see where the beggar Lazarus died and he was carried away by the angels. It says to Abraham's bosom. All right. And everybody said, well, that's the place. That's where all the Old Testament saints are. That's where. No, I don't think it is. I believe that place of Abraham's bosom, bosom was a place where Abraham and Lazarus were in the presence of God. Um, that, that word bosom simply means chest. That's all it means. And you've got to remember back then, you know, they didn't sit around the table, around a banquet table in chairs like we do today. They would lay down, and they would most likely have their head almost on the chest of the person next to them. And that's how they would converse and eat. They'd lean on one elbow and eat with the, the other hand, and they would talk. And a lot of times, these banquets and stuff would last for days. So they wanted to be comfortable. Um, wedding feasts could last up to seven days. And so they would recline and they leaned on their elbows and they would eat that way. And apparently, you know, that's how John and Christ were positioned at the Last Supper. So I I believe being in Abraham's bosom meant simply reclining at a banquet table in celebration of joy in heaven. Abraham is the most honored man in history, um, besides Christ, and John the Baptist for the most part, of the Old Testament anyway he is, and being seated next to him, stop and think about it, you were seated next to the guest of honor. And what Jesus was pointing out in Matthew, or in, in Luke here, was that, you know what, even though you have this honored man, Abraham, and then you have Lazarus, this ordinary beggar, he was reclining at a table with the greatest man in Jewish history. No distinguishment of persons there in heaven. The picture is the house of God and the feast he prepares for those who come into his presence. And even though Lazarus had a diseased earthly life, you might say, he had to beg to exist, he shared the place of honor with the greatest father of Israel. So heaven is going to be an a incredible, incredible place. Some people point over to Luke 23, verses 42 and 43. And when Jesus says, remember when you come into your, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. I've heard Christians say, well, that's, that's what limbo is. That's purgatory. No, it's not. And the reason I can, I can share that with you is if you turn to 2 Corinthians 12, 2 and 4, Paul explains, discusses this experience that he had. He didn't really understand it. We read part of this already, but I'll read it again just for the argument. He says, I know a man, 2 Corinthians 12, 2, in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I don't know. In other words, he didn't know what was going on. But he says, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know God knows, was caught up into, what's it say? Paradise. So the third heaven is heaven, where God, God dwells, and here it's referred to as paradise. And so when a saint died, he entered the presence of God, heaven itself. You don't go to a holding tank where people have to pray you up there. No, it doesn't work that way. Either you make it or you don't, and that's so important to understand because, you know, you don't get a second chance. Once you give up your life and you face death here on this earth and you're gone, you're, you're in one of two places, beloved, heaven or hell. 
There's no other way around that. I trust that you'll put your faith and trust in Christ because that's the only ticket to heaven. Uh, and when, when you get there, you'll know the joy that, that God has ready for us. Well, what is this place, heaven, going to be like? Once you die, you're going to get there. Well, I want you to turn back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 1. Because in a couple places in the Bible, we're actually given a glimpse of heaven. Somebody who's gone there and writes down what they're experiencing. And this is one of those places. Now, this is a uh, interesting, okay? And you can follow along here and see how far we get. But look at Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. This is Ezekiel's description of heaven. He was caught up into heaven. And here's what he wrote down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it, the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. So he saw four creatures, and here's what they looked like. They had human likeness, but each had four faces. And each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as it went. Okay? You all right with this? You understanding it? I don't think so. (laughs) Neither am I. Verse 10. This is what he's writing down, though. This is what he's experiencing. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, and the four the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro from the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro, like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of burl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being as it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. (laughs) Okay. I don't have a clue what he's talking about here. I have no idea. None. Verse 18. And their rims were tall and awesome. And the rims of the four were full of eyes all around. 
And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. And the wheels rose along with them. And the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels along rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. I have to remind my brother, he's a mechanic. He'll, he'll look forward. They got wheels in heaven. You know, that, that'd be good. Verse 22, on the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight and toward one another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. Verse 26, and above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in the appearance of sapphire, and seated above the likeness of the throne was a, a likeness of a human appearance, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like a, the appearance of fire enclosed all around, and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness all around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of the rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around him. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. That's Ezekiel's description of heaven. I mean, talk about weird just weird. I don't, you know, you can go into commentaries and it's almost comical to read what these guys say about this. Well, you know, this means that and that means this. And we don't have a clue. The Bible doesn't tell us. Doesn't tell us. He's just trying his best to write down what he experienced because he was caught up into heaven under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I bet even as he's writing it, he's thinking, what in the world am I writing? How do I describe this? And it's such an incredible place. You have this throne of the eternal, glorious God. You see these flashes of sparkling and rainbows and all sorts of things, wheels within wheels. and I mean, incredible. Heavenly creatures. Everything seems to be synchronized because there's no chaos in heaven. See, Ezekiel gave us a picture of heaven, but so does John. So does John in the book of Revelation. Turn back there to Revelation chapter 4. And you might be sitting there going, why aren't you going to tell us what all that means? I don't know. I mean, if you can figure it out, let me know. I'd love to hear your comments on it. I don't have a clue. I just know that's what he described it as being, and it's not something that is scary, because there's not going to be that in heaven. It's something that's glorious. 
It's overwhelming. But John gives us a picture in the book of Revelation chapter 4. And it's almost like, you know, we saw Ezekiel. He saw the throne there. And it's almost where John picks up here in the New Testament, in the Revelation chapter 4. He says in verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here. That's why we know heaven is up. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So we see here once again this throne. Heavens has a throne. There's a throne there. Ezekiel ended chapter 1 with the description of God's throne. Here, almost John picks up where Ezekiel left off. And it says in verse 3, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So you have this, this incredible sight. And we know who's on the throne. If that's its significance, we know that, that, that one stone speaks of possibly God as a redeemer because it's, blo- it's red in, in color, maybe picturing his blood, but even that is kind of conjecture. But there's a throne. And then he says in verses 3 to 5, verse 4, he says, Around the throne there were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning. There are these flashes of lightning again. John sees the same thing. He sees a throne, he sees the flashes of lightning. And rumblings and peals of thunder. I mean, it almost sounds scary, but it's not going to be scary. It's going to be incredible. And before the throne were burning, were burning seven torches of fire, fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, that doesn't mean that there's seven holy spirits. That's not what he's saying. Rather, that there is one sevenfold spirit is the right way to understand that. And if you want to study that, you can look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. It talks about the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Sevenfold spirit. Verse 6 says, Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. I mean, just an incredible, beautiful scene. A brilliant rainbow and these flashing colors, all this stuff going on. You know, this isn't odd. This is exactly what people experience in the presence of God. In Exodus 24, verses 9 and 10, it says, When Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. So it's a very common description, biblical description, of what we see. In heaven, there's a throne which comes with all these flashes of lightning, sparkling light, all that stuff. Beneath it is this crystal clear, brilliant, almost like a sea of glass.
Now, we can look at that and we can say, well, okay, that kind of gives us a little bit of information on it. But heaven is not this land of, you know, fog and mists and shadows and kind of creepy things. Um, when you read books on people that supposedly had died and gone to heaven and wrote a book about it, which I don't believe is valid, but that's what they're, they're writing about. And when they ask what it's like, they always say the same thing. It's like, it's like a, a light at a, the end of a long, long tunnel. And it seems like, you know, it just took me forever to get through this. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, no, when you go to heaven, you're there like that. You don't have to look down some tube with a light at the end. It's not, I don't know where they get this stuff. Heaven is not some light at the end of a dark tunnel. Its brilliance is beyond even description. You have these 24 thrones around the throne, 24 elders. Those elders represent the new, new priesthood, the church in heaven. We're going to be reigning with God in the midst of this, this whole situation. I mean, what a glorious thing to look forward to. But it's interesting because there's not only a throne in heaven, but the Bible says there's also a temple in heaven. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12 says, He who overcomes, talking about the Christians, says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Revelation 7, verse 15, says one of the 24 elders, speaking of the saints who have come out of the great tribulation, says they are before the throne of God and they will serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. See, Christians will serve God in the temple. We're not just going up to heaven to just kind of sit around and, you know, do nothing. We're going to be doing things in heaven. We'll be worshiping God. We'll be serving. We'll be doing certain things. Revelation 11, chapter 19 says, The temple of God which is in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Wow. Wow. Uh, Revelation 15 says, I looked and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. So we see a temple. Revelation 21, 22 says the same thing. And I saw no temple in it in the new Jerusalem, the Lord God Almighty. Okay. This is in Revelation 21, 22. All these, all these Passages indicate that there's a temple in heaven, but then when you come to Revelation 21, 22, it says, I saw no temple in the New Jerusalem. Why? Because the temple in the New Jerusalem will actually be the Lord. It says, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The temple of that city, Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem, isn't a place where God dwells, it's a place where God is the temple. So it's kind of an interesting thing we have to look forward to. It describes this temple as the Lord himself. And by saying that we're going to be pillars in that temple, God promised us a place forever in the very presence of God. That's what we have to look forward to. 
That's just a little, little overview glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. Next week, we're going to look at what we're going to be like in heaven. What are we going to be like? What, how, what are our bodies going to be? Are we going to be able to relate to one another? What's going to be up there? Somebody asked, are there going to be animals in heaven? Well, we'll find out. We'll look at that. But I trust that this morning, you have your hope in Christ. Because he's the only ticket to heaven there is. And I pray that if you've put that decision off, that you won't put it off any longer. That you'll come to the Savior as he desires you to. Let's close in a word of prayer. And then we'll close with a song. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the glimpse of heaven. Lord, I pray that we would talk about it more. Lord, that we would be interested in it more than even this earth. And Lord, I pray for each person here this morning. I know that many of us have put our faith, our trust in Christ, and we know we're assured by your word. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I pray that that would really manifest our attitude when it comes to this life. It's hard, Paul says, which to choose. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, to be with Christ. That's far better, but also to remain here in the flesh is necessary on your account. Lord, as long as we're living, breathing, you have a purpose for us. And our purpose is to serve you with everything we have. To reach out and to touch a lost and dying world with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To see lives transformed by his glorious might. We pray that as death one day will usher us from this life into God's presence. Lord, that we will be comforted by that. If you've yet to trust Christ, I pray that you would do that even now. Cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to trust in you for my salvation. Turn over to you the burden of my sin. Acknowledging Christ is my Savior and Lord. You pray that kind of prayer from a sincere heart. He'll change you. He'll transform you. He'll save you. Thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.